0: All right, everybody, you are listening or watching Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and we are here today with another edition of the Hashtag Femme Doctor series. And my guest today is Serena H. Chen, MD. She is a fertility specialist in New Jersey. Welcome, Dr. Chen. Thanks for having me. Thank you for saying yes. <laughs> and I will warn people that you have um, a very colorful personality. Not warning. It's not a warning. It's more like, (laughs) hey, not a stuffy doctor here at all. (laughs) So thank you for that. So I wanted to start out with um, just kind of getting to know you a little bit from your educational background. Did you know that you always wanted to be a physician?
1: I actually, you know, I'm the child. I'm the first born child of immigrant Asian parents, who themselves are both physicians. So um, that means that from before the time I was born, I was supposed to go to Harvard Medical School and become, you know, like a neuro-ophthalmologist, something that would be extremely hard to get into and extremely intellectual and make an extreme amount of money without working too hard. That so all of this was decided ahead of time supposed to go to Harvard undergrad Harvard medical school do a residency at Harvard because in that generation you know Asian professionals coming over to the United States the that's the ultimate in success having your children uh go through that so no pressure um, (laughs) no pressure so that's (laughs) how we started and um so I kind of rebelled against that a little bit. I mean, I was still a good kid. You know, I played, I took the piano lessons and the violin lessons and the flute lessons, and I got all straight A's and all of that. But when I went to, when I went to college, which was brown, you know, and when I decided I wanted to apply to brown, the quote from my dad was brown, that's a color. What kind of, that's not a school. And I'm like, you know, so that, and luckily that year, Brown was on the cover of Time Magazine as one of the hardest schools in the country to get into. And I explained that it's in the Ivy League, just like Harvard. So they reluctantly agreed to let me go to Brown. Um, wow,
0: only Brown.
1: Yeah, so I went there and I was determined to be a computer programmer, cause I was like, you know, computers are the future. They're gonna run the world. And if you know computers, you know, you, you can run the world. So that's what, what I went there. Um, That was my plan. And, uh, and I'm definitely not going to be a doctor because my parents really want me to be a doctor and I, and I really don't want to do that. So, um, but, you know, ultimately I was terrible at computer programming. So,
0: (laughs) yeah that's not my gig either i would never yeah, have thought of like, that like so i
1: just i it just it just wasn't a good fit for me and it turned out that i gravitated a lot towards like my favorite classes turned out to be uh, a lot of the biological classes like i had like a, a um you know and i ended up majoring in biology and anthropology a typical brown type major and um really really loving some of my biology anthropology professors and that so then medical school made more sense by the time I got to junior year and
0: and then I, we were like darn I'm gonna make my parents happy <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm not gonna be the rebel that I thought I was gonna be
1: <laughs> yeah by that time they had relaxed a little bit so um and they realized you know like my grades really were not the best at Brown because um you know, college is like I needed. I needed to like learn about the real world a little bit. So um, I did get into Duke, and um, was very excited about that. And my dad was actually super excited because the tuition was so much less than Brown. So <laughs> he was he was really happy. And then uh, my mom went to a cocktail party with a bunch of her Asian friends. And she came home. She was really, really upset because she had told one of her friends that, you know, I got into Duke medical school. And the friend was like, oh, so sorry, it's not Harvard. Oh. You know, and my mom was like, that Mrs. Lee, she a bitch. You know, so. <laughs> so did you, you know, apply mom, to Harvard? What? Did you apply to Harvard? No, I did not have the grades. I did not, you know, I did not have the grades. I did not have a grade. So I did not even apply there. And uh, Duke was definitely the best school I got into. Um, So, you know, I was really grateful to get into Duke and that and actually that turned out to be a really wonderful experience to go down south as uh, an Asian female, because it uh, that school at the time was probably 70 percent southern and 70 percent male. And uh, very, you know, very white male dominated. So it was very interesting experience compared to like the, the diversity at Brown. And you know, I learned a lot, and I had a wonderful time. Um, so, you know,
0: wow. So when did you decide that you wanted to specialize in fertility, or did that just sort of happen?
1: So, uh, I I was interested in everything. And
0: um,
1: when I got to Duke, um, a lot of it turned out to be about the people, you know, like the the people that I connected with the most were with the OBGYN department. Like I I honestly didn't really l- like the idea of OBGYN because the lifestyle seemed a little tough, you know, all the weekends and the night call and things like that. But I had such a great experience on the rotation and really connected with the people. Um, that ultimately, it seemed like the right fit. Um, And I did not really think about doing much more than OBGYN. Until later, you know, once I became OBGYN, I was interested, again, in everything, you know, I liked cancer. So GYN oncology, I really liked high risk OB, I liked general GYN. And um, IVF was actually still very new, you know, like when, when I, I went to Hopkins for a residency and at the time our IVF lab was it, essentially in a, in an incubator that we kept a baby incubator that we kept in a broom closet. So it was, um, it was very, you know, very, very beginning. And at that time that, um, the, the Senator Wyden passed the Wyden law because, The CDC was very, very concerned about the fact that people all over the country were opening these IVF labs and charging a lot of money and the pregnancy rates were close to zero or zero in a lot of these labs. So the government felt like, oh, you know, there needs to be some oversight of these clinics because this is just not right because the technology was very, very new then. So um that was in the eighties. And a lot of people were like, Oh, that's really experimental. I will never do IVF. And that's part of what I really liked about it is that it was so new and you could see there's so much potential. I couldn't have imagined what it would be like today because the field is just, it's just exploding, um, on all different levels, pregnancy rates, technology. Um, it, it, it's um, amazing what's happen- happening in our field. But at the time, you could tell that there, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of potential. I mean, growing a baby in a test tube sounds crazy. So I decided, well, you know, that's really fascinating. That's what I want to do.
0: So back then, if you couldn't have kids, or maybe right before IVF, if you c- couldn't have children, there really wasn't much you could do. You could adopt. And that was kind of, yes,
1: there was not a lot we could do. We did a ton of surgery because surgery would raise your pregnancy rate, maybe from one to 2%, you know, which is an improvement, but really not much. Um, So we had very few tools. Like we had a few diagnostic tools, but very little treatment tools. And um, yes, a lot of people just tried, the same treatments over and over and over again. We did a lot of surgery. We did a little bit of hormones and, um, and a lot of people just did not succeed and did end up adopting. What was the surgery? What would that do? So we would try to repair tubes. We would try to remove endometriosis for infertility patients. Um, Infertility, the prevalence of endometriosis may be like 10%, 10% in the general population, but the prevalence in the infertility population is like well over 50%. Oh. Um, all ranges of endometriosis from stage one and stage two, which are uh, really almost impossible to diagnose without a laparoscopy to really severe endometriosis that makes these big cysts and can block tubes. But every stage of endometriosis does cause a significant Decline in fertility, and we had just the, our only tool at the time was really surgery.
0: So, do you know is there a higher incidence of endometriosis than there used to be? You know, that's a I good question. Know. I I don't think we have
1: good data because we do not long we no longer do laparoscopy. So. A huge portion of patients that we call unexplained infertility probably have stage one or stage two endometriosis. So we don't know that. Now, having said that, a lot of people feel that environmental exposures that, um, you know, of modern life have, and delayed childbearing both lead to higher rates of endometriosis. So we want people to avoid things like endocrine disruptors that like parabens and phthalates in your products and your cosmetics uh, avoid microwaving in plastic we feel like those things can be associated with endometriosis with birth defects possibly with hormonally responsive cancers like prostate and breast so uh, and those are things that have been around for a while and only now are starting to be regulated in the United States And only now are consumers starting to be more aware of those issues. Um, And then the delayed childbearing is definitely becoming more and more prevalent every single day, which, um, you know, leads to higher rates of endometriosis because pregnancy can be protective. Now, having said that, you know, birth control pills are really protective against endometriosis. So um, that's definitely one thing that can actually preserve, help preserve your fertility in many ways uh, and lower your risk for ovarian cancer and cancer of the lining of the uterus. And that's that's one of the nice things that we see with with birth control pills, which is ironic because a lot of people think birth control pills lower your fertility, but in some ways, especially for people who are high risk, it can really be helpful.
0: Well, I think a lot of people think that it causes cancer too. That's what I've heard. People worry
1: about that. Exactly. And and actually the cancer reduction benefit of birth control pills really um, outweighs any possible increased risk of breast cancer. There are some studies that show possibly um, a mild increase in early stage uh, breast cancers, Uh, But a lot of studies say they don't really see an increase, so that jury is still out.
0: Mm, That's interesting. Yeah, I keep it depends what magazine I'm reading or what news program I'm watching. So I guess that your your answer would be the same. You know, do we have more infertile people, uh, couples, or is it just that people are having children later and maybe they're not as fertile or? Um, We're just more attuned to these kinds of things because we have the technology. I think think? all of
1: those things come into play. I think all of those things definitely come into play. Um, And what's, uh, but, you know, we are getting healthier and healthier. The hard part is um, we're doing better and better with our lifestyle, which is anti-aging, which I think is part of why people want to delay childbearing because, you know, it totally makes sense. You know, you're working on your career, you feel perfectly healthy. You know, why, why do you need to get pregnant? I mean, the old days we used to like just get pregnant. I don't know, at age 16 have 20 kids by 30 and then drop dead of exhaustion by 35, yeah. you know, right. So uh, now the average age expectancy is more like 85, right. You know, for uh, in the United States. So it's really, um, incredible what's been going on. And that, that's why we're seeing IVF being IVF technology being used for egg freezing now, which is super exciting.
0: Yes. I saw something about that on your Instagram page. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask you, but let's back up before that a little bit. What is considered a geriatric pregnancy? Uh, (laughs) Okay. So I would
1: say that we should get rid of that term. I, I don't know who came up with that term. Yeah, it's not very flattering. <laughs> I I think honestly nothing against guys, but I think that must have been made up by some guy. Probably because geriatric pregnancy means just uh, over thirty five. Supposedly that's the common use of it, which is insane because thirty five year olds are young. Um, but that is the point. They, this comes if this has historical. Designation because at age 35, the risk of having a child with um, a chromosomal abnormality reaches about um, you know one in one in 300, and that's the risk of losing a normal pregnancy with an amniocentesis typically. So that's where the risks risk benefit ratio lines cross. And that's why at age 35, we always used to do amniocentesis uh, at age 35, because the risk of, you know, finding a real abnormality definitely, you know, w- was there and it justified taking that small risk of putting a needle, you know, into the pregnant belly and pulling out fluid to check the genetics. So it's a, it's an arbitrary decision and line, but that led people to start saying, well, you know, this is 35 is advanced maternal age. And then people started using the word geriatric, which I think is even worse than advanced maternal age. So um, it would be nice to come up with another term, but it's a historical term. And uh, I'm not sure that it's necessarily clinically relevant anymore, but people still use it because, you know, now with a lot of non-invasive gen- genetic technology, People are no longer just routinely doing amniocentesis at 35. That just doesn't make sense for us anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, historically, I mean, people did have kids a lot younger. You know, with my mom had me, I think she even in her generation, maybe it was a bit young. I'm 45. And she had me, I think, when she was 21 or 22. And, you know, according to her, that's what everybody was doing in that generation. And certainly now it's much more common to see women well into their thirties and even forties. I think I've actually heard of some people in their fifties having babies. Yeah. So is it just, maybe it's not really, um, what our bodies were designed to do. And I'd love to hear your opinion about that, but maybe it's just sort of what we've grown accustomed to.
1: It's what we've grown accustomed to. And obviously there's societal pressures, um, from, um, medical perspective, we definitely start to see higher rates of things like diabetes, high blood pressure, preeclampsia over the age of 40, 42. Um, although I'm not sure that's really controlled for optimizing your general health, because I do think um, we have, you know, we have such a high prevalence of obesity and poor lifestyle. It's it's hard to separate age from lifestyle. And if you really optimize your lifestyle would you, would you see, would you still see those same effects? Definitely with regard to fertility, that's the one thing that we don't seem to be able to change very much with healthy behavior. So we, we have like a little clock in the ovary and it seems to be programmed to just degenerate over time so that as you get older, you just make a lot more eggs with extra or missing chromosomes. So that seems to be really programmed in there. So that's definitely, we can't, we can't seem to change that even if we're, you know, healthy, non-smoking, vegetarian, you know, exercisers. Yeah. So, um, but the other stuff, a lot of the other stuff, like your, your ability to carry a pregnancy and be healthy, uh, I think can be somewhat modified by your, by healthy behavior.
0: So would you say, and I know I'm asking you to generalize, but is it, you know, healthier for a woman who's 40, but you know, the, a vegan exerciser who never smoked and, you know, is lean and all of that, is it safer for her to have a child than it would be for someone maybe who's 32, who's obese and has diabetes and, and has high blood pressure?
1: It could be. But that 40-year-old will have a much higher risk of conceiving a child with Down syndrome or, you know, or having a miscarriage in the first Uh, trimester because miscarriages in the first trimester are genetically based, not really general health based.
0: Is that nature's way of rejecting the fetus because there's something wrong with it? I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens in like at least one out of four every four
1: pregnancies. so it it seems to be fairly routine for nature, although people process it like a death. so it's it's really um, it's a little bit when harsh, I think, yes,
0: you know? not the right thing to say to someone who has had a miscarriage, um, yeah, but even though it seems to be that that's the case. So take me through this. I'm 45. I come to your office and I say, Serena, Dr. Chen, I've been having lots of sex trying to get pregnant and it's not happening. What do we do now? So we
1: do a very thorough evaluation, heart, lungs, breast exam, a vaginal ultrasound, a lot of blood work. um, And we check your partner's sperm and his blood work We try to get you to optimize your health and maybe we try using your own eggs, but at 45, a lot of people's eggs don't work. And then we might think about egg donation.
0: They don't work, but we were born with all of our eggs, right? Women are born with their eggs. Yeah, You're born with all of your eggs and you run out around
1: 51 on the average. That's when menopause occurs, but sometime around 42, 43, the, the numbers game really stops working so that even if we like do IVF and we get a lot of eggs, um, what we're seeing is like a 95, 99% abnormality rate genetically. So it can be really tough, but the technology is getting a little bit better. And I think that um, now that the technology is improved and we can do genetic testing, there are some people in this age range that can produce a lot of eggs and might be able to get a normal embryo and have a pregnancy, but the pregnancy rates tend to do tend to be really, really low uh still without egg donation. So, but it's really common. I see a lot of people in their mid forties who really um, want to go through fertility treatment? Really don't want to think about donor egg, and you know we give it a try, but it it's it's definitely hard. That's one of our biggest challenges.
0: So the problem is with the egg itself. It's not with the person who would be right. Exactly, it. it's not
1: with the person. Exactly. So all we need is a healthy egg, and we get a healthy egg from whatever source, and we can make a healthy embryo. Then it's it's really the uterus doesn't seem to age the same way the eggs do. So the uterus seems to be able to carry a pregnancy much longer to a a much more advanced age for a lot of people than, um, than the egg. Now, having said that, a lot of people as they get older will have more issues like fibroids and things like that, which sometimes can make the uterus less hospitable. But the problem with age lies in the egg itself.
0: Oh that's interesting. Which I remember, is, you know, which
1: is why there's such a big focus now on the
0: egg freezing. Yes, I was just going there. So I remember <laughs> when I was 27, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how this came up, but she goes, "You know, your eggs are old." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow. "Thanks, grandma." <laughs> So, I I don't know, were they old at 27? Uh, When do they get old? That's interesting, 27 is supposedly when
1: we start seeing some decline, uh, significant decline in in infertility. Although what I I tell most people that are thinking about their eggs is, um, you know, get a checkup, make sure there's no issues. um, You know, because like what if, you know, God forbid, you're walking around with a big, hunk of endometriosis in your twenties, you know, then your ovaries are going to age prematurely. But most people, if everything checks out, everything looks good, then, um, you know, between 30 and 35, if you're not ready to have a baby yet, think about, well, maybe it's time to get some information about egg freezing.
0: So do you think there's a point at which it just doesn't make sense to freeze your eggs? Like if you're 35 or over? i freeze a lot of eggs over 35
1: because a lot of people still have plenty of good eggs to freeze. So I think it's, um, it's very, I I don't like to set um, arbitrary, you know, lines. Mm -hmm. I like, you know, I like people to know the numbers, like to know the logistics and the numbers, the risks, the benefits, and, you know, and the money, because that that's often egg freezing is often not covered. And um, which is, which should not be, you know, really it should be covered because freezing eggs, especially in a society where the birth rate is so low and everybody is trying to delay childbearing because a lot of people are, you know, finding the right partner or getting an education or working on their career. It's really a societal benefit to be able to freeze eggs because if you can preserve somebody's fertility and lower the risk for infertility and miscarriage and birth defects, um, that's a benefit to all of society, but the burden right now, the burden of egg freezing is upon the individual woman's shoulders, which to me doesn't seem quite fair. It it, (laughs) it does seem like it's something that we should all be supportive of.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, it seems we can't do anything about this, although you never know. Um, why do why are women born with all of their eggs? Why can't they just produce more eggs like men are always producing new sperm? That's a good question. I think it's because eggs
1: do so much more work than sperm. So
0: That's it, not surprising.
1: Know, <laughs> it's not surprising <laughs> at all. So you look at eggs under the microscope, eggs are like like Jupiter. And, and sperm are like little ants because sperm are super small, one of the smallest cells in the body. Eggs are one of the largest cells in the body. And that's because sperm are very lean and mean. It's just DNA and then like a tail to get the DNA to where it's going. And that's all they do. They do nothing else. They just deliver the DNA. And meanwhile, the egg has... A huge amount of stuff because the egg has all the messenger RNA, all the proteins, all the ribosomes, all the organelles that the little embryo needs for the first three days of life because the sperm genome takes three days just to get going with what it's supposed to be doing, like, you know, making proteins and things like that, like contributing. So the sperm doesn't contribute anything for the first three days of life and the egg does all this work. And so biologically, I think that's a much higher cost and maybe that's why this happened. I don't really know. It's just my theory.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever be able to do anything about that, but um, it's interesting to think about the new technology. I'm sure that when IVF first came out and they were calling those test tube babies, I don't hear that expression as much anymore, but there was a lot of controversy in the news about that, about whether it was moral and you know what kind of society are we living in where people can create a baby outside of the body and all of that. I think we've come an awfully long way since then. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the technology that we have other than just IVF. Because I know there's... And maybe you could even clarify exactly what IVF is. So IVF stands for in vitro fertilization, which just
1: means that fertilization takes place outside the body in a dish in the laboratory, whereas normally fertilization takes place in the fallopian tubes. So we really um, don't have a ton of a huge range of treatments. We have like um, fertility pills, fertility shots, Intrauterine insemination, um, and those are non-IVF treatments plus surgery and then doing things like correcting abnormalities, like checking your thyroid function, doing all those kinds of things, like addressing medical issues. Um, IVF, on the other hand, even though it was designed to bring the sperm and egg together in people who have blocked tubes where you know, the sperm and egg just physically couldn't get together... IVF these days has advanced so much that it, it, it ultimately can treat basically every kind of infertility. And it can treat also, and it can also, you know, help people who don't have infertility but need help conceiving, like lesbian couples, gay couples, transgender people. And actually, this idea of making all your eggs for your whole lifetime, you know, when you're a fetus and running out of eggs will be be done soon. Like we might not be able to take advantage of it, but I think maybe the next generation actually could because stem cell technology is advancing quickly and it is possible relatively soon that we will be able to scrape some skin cells into an envelope, send them to a lab and have the lab manufacture eggs or sperm for us.
0: That's crazy.
1: Crazy. Yeah. That does People sound... are working on that as we speak. So we may be able to solve this, you know, the issue of menopause and and a lot of fertility related issues or age related infertility issues in the next possibly in the next generation.
0: So then the question that always comes up when you have some really new technology like that, that seems so radical is, okay, we can do that, but should we do that?
1: Christina, that's like, we could talk for hours about this. This is huge, but you know, right now, okay, that's like the next generation right now. If you really, really wanted to, you could, you know, go through IVF, make a lot of embryos. And, you know, that's not really commercially available, but the knowledge base, or at least not really in the United States, but the knowledge to be able to take those embryos and do things like check for projected height, projected intelligence, That technology actually is here, is kind of here now. It's not really practical right now because if um, most people only make a couple normal embryos, so like out of a dozen eggs, it actually turns out we're very inefficient with conventional IVF. You make a dozen eggs, which is like a year's worth of eggs, really only one or two of those eggs is going to make an embryo that can make a baby. That so, that's we're just really inefficient that way. A lot of eggs and sperm are just not good enough to make a healthy baby. Um, But if we um, combine this ability to do testing with the ability to make more eggs or more embryos, um, you know, we're looking at a very huge power to basically. Um, you know, gen- do genetic determination or, you know, a quote unquote designer babies.
0: Yes. Yeah. I've heard that expression. It just seems so astounding to me that all these people are around in the world and there's so many pregnant women when it's really a miracle to get pregnant. There's so many things that have to go right. It's true. It's true.
1: It is it it still amazes me every day. I do this all the time, but it does still amaze me every day. So um, but that's part of what's so great about this field. It's like there's there is a lot, a lot of cool technology and it's advancing all the time. Some of it's a little bit scary because we all have to think about like if we do a lot of genetic selection, um, are we gonna get to a point where insurance companies are gonna say, you know, you didn't have to have that child with that genetic disease, you could have Mm. avoided that. And we're not sure we want to pay for that, you know, like, there's a lot of crazy things that can come out of this technology. So I do think, you know, everybody, even people who are not doctors, people who are not scientists, like everybody, everybody needs to be more aware of this technology so that we can kind of see like, you know, as a human race, like where, where, where do we want to go? You know, how are we going to use this? It really is like, it really does remind you of, you know, the 1920s book, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, like where he, they were designing, okay, your, I don't even remember the categories, but there were categories of people who could, who could only do this level job and categories. And they were just like genetically programmed that way.
0: Yeah. I'm sure there's movies about it too.
1: Um, is it Galactica? No, Gattaca. I think it's Gattaca. That that where where that's kind of the principle in in that movie. That was like maybe Tom Cruise was in it. It was some popular movie of, like a few years ago where they were like, "Yeah, you can only do this," and then and then the lead, the handsome lead actor decided <laughs> he was going to do something else. Yeah, something well, like think-
0: that. Do you ever foresee, is there any, like even a, a morsel of um, evidence that we could ever reproduce without either having a man or a woman?
1: Yeah, that's, well, the stem cell, you know, well, right now we do that with, um, you know, a gay couple will use um, donor eggs. So they can just order some donor eggs from an egg bank or use a carrier, but for the future, this whole thing, the stem cell technology, like theoretically, you could take the stem cells and whether you're a man or a woman, you could make either eggs or sperm.
0: So, okay. So if you were writing a science fiction book, you could actually, you know, have something plausible in your your plot where, you know, some evildoer gets rid of men. They're, they're gone. We don't want them here anymore. They're useless. And there's only women left. I'm not suggesting that this is a good idea. But just for purposes of this conversation, because I kind of like men. And is is that something that you could actually come up with something plausible where that could happen? Yeah. So
1: this would be the hand men's tale as opposed to the hand maiden's tale, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, somebody should write that. Yeah, and then we could all dress up in interesting outfits and and become
0: an HBO series. Yes, yeah, so I'm gonna <laughs> write to you, Margaret Atwood, and I'm gonna hook yeah. you guys up. Maybe you could work there together. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's crazy. That's really that crazy, crazy to even think about.
1: It's it is crazy to think about, but we we have to think about. It. You know, there's um I don't know if they're still advertising. I haven't looked recently, but there's there's some practice in New York that is claiming that they can choose your baby's eye color.
0: I've heard stuff like this. Yeah.
1: Which is, and, and, you know, a lot of couples, you know, this is mostly the infertility population very, it's, it's actually not so common with people who are not infertile, but a lot of infertility for infertile couples that have to do IVF anyway, if they have more than one embryo will often say, can I put in the XX embryo? instead of the XY embryo. Can I do this, the XY embryo first? You know, like they, you know, essentially do sex selection.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that that's so radical. I remember when I first heard that much younger and I remember this news program about, you know, was it moral to, for us to be able to pick the sex now and where are we going next? And this was a long time ago, but I don't know if that doesn't seem so weird anymore.
1: It doesn't seem so weird in the United States, but when you look at like when the W the WHO actually has come out against sex selection because they look at it in like the East Asian countries where there's actually um, it's not just sex it's not like family balancing where uh, you know in the United States everybody wants one boy one girl you know a two car garage and a dog right yeah but in in India and China they have actually done sex selection through you know abortions and and a female infanticide or even just, um, you know, something a little more subtle, like just not taking the girl child to the doctor as often as you take the male child to the doctor. So they've actually changed their sex ratios in those populations, creating lots of societal, social, psychological and economic issues for both those countries, including a dramatically increased risk for violence against women with a, a changed sex ratio. So that um, that can be the dark side of sex selection, which we we really don't see here in the United States as much. But um, you know that's one of the concerns. So there's all this stuff where it's like we have this amazing technology, and you know we can we can maybe prevent disease and heal people and prevent suffering, but we always have to think about like the possible other side too.
0: Yes. There's always going to be a dark side, right? There's always going to be somebody that's wants to use it for something nefarious. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you could walk me through a little bit in a little more detail, what happens with the whole fertility um, treatment. So let's say I go in How do you get my eggs? Do you have to pump me up with hormones and retrieve them?
1: We pump you up with hormones, but the hormones, you know, everybody thinks, oh my God, I'm going to turn into a raving mad dog, but you really don't. So again, it comes back to drinking plenty of water, having a good diet, getting a good night's sleep and kind of clearing your calendar a little bit. So you're not super stressed out. If you do those things, my patients are usually always tolerate it really well, because if you think about the fertility drugs. Are really nothing. Most of the times they're nothing crazy. They're just the same hormones that your body makes. We're just giving you a little extra. So instead of you know recruiting one egg to maturity, we're recruiting half a dozen or a dozen eggs to maturity. So it's actually not you know it's not any weird chemotherapy. It's really just the hormones your body makes and and getting plenty of rest and. And taking care of yourself usually means you have very few side effects. So most people feel a little tired, which is understandable because you're making extra eggs. And, you know, and that just means you need to rest more. And then some people feel a little bloated. And then after the retrieval, a lot of people get a little constipated, but it's usually nothing severe.
0: So how do you get the eggs out? Is I imagine a giant needle.
1: So... It's actually not a giant needle. So the needle is very long because it has to go from the outside of the body all the way to the top of the vagina. So it's long, but the size of the needle is about the same size as a blood drawing needle. So it's nothing crazy. And we attach it to a transvaginal ultrasound probe. And if anybody's had a transvaginal ultrasound, it's done because if we put the probe in the vagina, it's a great way to get a very close up view of the ovaries. So one, so basically we're just putting a needle through the top, just the top part of the vagina and it goes right into the ovary. So it's essentially like just a needle stick into the right ovary needle stick into the left ovary. You are totally asleep. So we like people, I like people to be totally asleep. Some people do it like kind of where people are half awake, but you know, most people in the United States are, are put totally to sleep. And it literally takes 10 minutes it's probably like five, minutes, we're <laughs> five minutes for the right. Well, you know, we, the ovaries are big. We don't want you to move, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just much easier. So five minutes for ovary and then you wake up and it's actually not such a big deal.
0: So ideally how many eggs do you want to get?
1: We, we'd like to get a dozen eggs per retrieval, but some people only get one egg and some people get a hundred eggs. Everybody's a little bit different. And ultimately, the number of eggs you need to make a baby differs a lot depending upon your age. Like women in their 40s, some people say, well, you need, like 50, you need a lot of eggs in your 40s to get a baby. But if you're in your 20s, you maybe don't only need a few eggs to, to get to the baby.
0: So let me understand how, how is it that there's not just this you know, huge amount of eggs in the ovary just sitting there waiting to be plucked.
1: There's supposedly, you know, if you have a healthy person with normal ovarian reserve there, you're right. There should be a lot of eggs in there, but the drugs can only touch a certain number. So like a lot of the eggs are in this quiescent phase where they can't actually even respond to the drugs. And this is why IVF doesn't put you through menopause earlier because everybody loses a you know about a thousand eggs a month anyway and all we're doing is rescuing a few of those uh with the egg retrieval so we're not making you go through your eggs faster by doing IVF. we're doing egg freezing but we can't just you know not all the eggs will respond
0: So, when you say lose eggs, are they dying? What's happening to them? It's programmed cell death.
1: It's something called apoptosis. And we're not sure exactly why it happens, but
0: this is really educational for me because despite my education and having read different fertility books, just out of curiosity, I always thought that every month there's one little egg. You know, that's in the follicle and, and it sort of pops like that's how I imagine it happens. And then it travels through the fallopian tube and doesn't get fertilized and out it goes. I didn't realize that all these other eggs that are in the ovary, yeah, they're just all, hanging out waiting.
1: They all start growing and then one of them takes the lead and is ovulated and the others that don't ovulate just kind of regress and die. And and when we give the drugs, we kind of get more of them to develop. But but even though a lot are tagged and you lose a lot all the time, the drugs can only
0: rescue so many eggs. That's really interesting. Thank you for clearing that up for me all these years. <laughs> so I've been wrong about that. <laughs> I thought it was a, a much cleaner transaction. You're not going. alone. A lot of people
1: a lot of people think that. So
0: Yeah. That's really fascinating. So you, you get the eggs, you get however many you get. Um, Do you, so at that point, you're just trying to get eggs. You don't know that they're actually healthy, viable eggs until you inspect them later. Right. And typically we, we expect um,
1: maybe one out of half a dozen or a dozen eggs, hopefully will be healthy enough to make a, a normal embryo, which usually has about a 60% live birth rate. Now, um, so that's just like on average. Um, but you know, if you're older, the, the, the chances are lower. If you're younger, the chances are better. Every, everybody's a little bit different.
0: So if you don't get enough eggs or maybe you don't even get any, do you go back in again?
1: A lot of times we do. We'll like adjust the medication, see if we can improve the response. um, there's a lot of data that uh, trying IVF multiple times does improve your pregnancy rate. It doesn't make you more fertile. It just means like every time you try, you're just giving yourself another chance. And so what we see in is in the United States is that it's hard that... Um, because of insurance and also because just like going through fertility treatment is emotionally really draining and logistically hard to do. that It just takes up a lot of time that we actually the, the, the dropout rate because people just get discouraged or they just get tired is actually mm-hmm. the number one cause for failure of IVF in this country because, because a, lot of, a lot of people need multiple cycles to get to the baby. You know it's that's just the nature of mother nature she's like super inefficient
0: it's also expensive isn't
1: it it is expensive and um but insurance is getting better and better like in new jersey we we do have a lot of people covered because of the mandate and because a lot of tech companies and and fortune 500 companies are realizing that recruiting talented people means having really good benefits and, and people actually look for good reproductive and family benefits. So um, people are offering those more and more, which is nice.
0: Yeah. I've heard of some friends and people that I know that had insurance that covered it and others didn't. Yeah.
1: It's still tough across the country. I think the number, if you look at the whole country, not all of us are as lucky as we are in New Jersey. So 80, 85% of people actually don't have any IVF coverage.
0: Yeah. So,
1: um, so that's definitely mm-hmm. a tough part. But when you look at the data, the insurance is usually not the biggest barrier. The biggest barrier is often just lot is often loss of hope.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And have you, I'm sure that you've heard this. I know people who went through this whole process numerous times. It was really hard on them. They didn't conceive. And then a couple years later, they get pregnant. Yeah. Not even trying. Yeah. And that's because most of the people
1: we treat are not truly sterile. They're just less fertile than normal. And so um, they can get pregnant on their own. And sometimes IVF helps, but sometimes, you know, you'll just get pregnant on your own. So IVF is um, like for somebody who has open tubes and a regular cycle and their sperm, you know, the every time you try IVF, there's maybe in our lab like a 60% take-home baby rate. But there's 1% or 2% chance of conceiving on their own each month actually adds up to 30% chance of conceiving over two years. So, and that's not, you know, that's not insignificant. So a lot of times the, you know, the reason to do IVF is because like the longer you go, the more depressed you get, you know, because you're, you're not conceiving and also because you're getting older and we worry about losing, you know, the, the opportunity of time. But, yeah. um, but, you know, most people that are going through IVF or fertility treatment do have the ability to conceive on their own. So we're, we're it's not that we're, we're treating people
0: who have a 0% chance. Oh, they just want to move things along with exactly. science. Exactly. So I think I know the answer to this based upon what you've said, and this might be a really dumb question, but could you just take the ovary out and just crack it open and take the eggs out? There are people that do that, and we do that for
1: cancer patients, like oh. pediatric cancer patients who where it's really tough to stimulate their eggs or it's like an emergency and we can't do that that's really technically much harder to do because it's, it's not so easy to freeze the eggs. And then it's really hard once when they're still in the ovary to get them out because you have to get them to maturity. So um, when frozen eggs are um, freezing eggs through IVF has just a very high pregnancy rate and it's just like much, much easier to do. Whereas the number of baby, and there's thousands and thousands of babies now um, from frozen egg IVF, but frozen ovary IVF, there's only, there's maybe like a dozen babies in the whole world that have been born from that. Because once you take the ovary out then, and you want to use the eggs, you have to figure out how are you going to get them to be mature. So it's it's just technically much more difficult. They're getting better at it all the time, but technically just much more difficult.
0: Let's get to the men. So if their sperm isn't, um, adequate, is there some way to fix that or not? You know, basically we solved like
1: 99.9% of cases of male factor infertility in 1996 when ICSI intracytoplasmic sperm injection was invented. So somebody accidentally was working with an egg and a sperm and ended up jabbing a needle with a sperm into the egg and it fertilized. And that discovery, injecting a single sperm into the egg and assisting fertilization has now solved like almost all cases of male factor infertility. So what male factor infertility, our approach is Number one, optimize health, because a lot of people can improve their sperm uh, and their fertility by, you know, losing some weight, drinking less alcohol, sleeping better, eating more vegetables, drinking, you know, like getting some exercise and, and avoiding things like taking testosterone. Testosterone actually is like a male contraceptive pill. It'll just kill your sperm and a lot of doctors don't know that people are a lot of people are giving out testosterone and not really telling people like this could knock out your sperm for good most people it only knocks out your sperm for a few months but some people actually get so much destruction of their testes from testosterone that they they become truly infertile truly azospermic no sperm at all so um So you can often improve male fertility with just being super healthy. The other other little tidbit that a lot of people don't seem to know is um, blood pressure medicines, calcium channel blockers, which are one of the most commonly prescribed types of blood pressure medicines, actually prevent um, the sperm from fertilizing the egg because the sperm have all these little calcium channels on their little heads. And that's how they stick to the egg. And if you put a calcium channel blocker, it's like they have this little helmet, they just, you know, boom, fall right off. So, and and a lot of most people who are prescribing these calcium channel blockers, internists, are like actually, they're not really aware of that. Because calcium channel blockers are super popular because they work great for high blood pressure and, you know, they're well tolerated. So they're really common. So. Those two things, people should avoid calcium channel blockers, which are a common type of blood pressure medicine and testosterone, and um, you try to be as healthy as you can be. Um, But, you know, if you have, if you're having problems getting pregnant, mild male infertility, we can solve with, you know, just getting healthier and maybe artificial insemination and severe, you know, IVF works really, really well. It's just
0: astounding. Yeah. It sounds like it's way more complicated than I even realized. But interesting. And, it's really interesting. Super interesting. And guys over
1: 40, maybe think about freezing your sperm too because, or try to freeze your sperm before you turn 40 because over 40 is, is seems to be associated with higher rates of autism and schizophrenia.
0: Oh, wow. That's in interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen, for all of this. I feel like I could easily just go on. We could all talk day. forever. Right? Yes, we could. <laughs> I, I, I did tell you that I was going to ask you if there's any books that have had an impact on you in your life. Okay. So I really want everybody to read
1: uh, Sean Acor. Um, let me just make sure I spell I spell his name correctly. He's a professor at Harvard, and he's. Um, It's S-E-A-N-A-C-H-O-R. And the two books that I love of his are The Happiness Advantage and Big Potential. Um, And it's just um, how, um, you know, that, that he just flips the script. Like he basically discovered that the key to happiness and success is often backwards in the United States that we think we're going to be happy once we're successful. Yeah. And in reality, and there's actually, he, he goes through in a really easy to read, very accessible way, like not in like a boring way at all. He's a very engaging writer. And if you can go through it, it can easily be an easy beach read um, where the truth is um, it's the happiness that leads to the success as opposed to the success leading to the happiness and flipping that script in our minds. Um, is it's just can be transformative. So I just, I just love how he writes and how he thinks and the fact that it's all backed up by a lot of data. And, and I think it can really, on a practical level, really, um, help people
0: be more successful in life. Well, thank you. I, that helped me because I, I know I fall into that trap. Like once I have this or once I do that, like everything's going to be different. Oh, me too. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um,
1: you have to tell me, you know, when you read the book, what you think.
0: I will. I would okay. love to do that. And that. Um, thank you again so much for your time. I would like for you to share with my viewers how they can reach out to you if they need your help. Absolutely. So um, I think the easiest way is
1: if you're on Instagram is to follow me on Instagram because I do try to put out a lot of content there. And it's Dr. Serena H. Chen. So it's Dr. Serena, like Serena Williams. H as in high maintenance Chen.
0: (laughs) I will have um, everything in the show notes so people can find you easily. And then, you know,
1: I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn and the
0: Dr. You can, you can use that too. So lots of ways to find me. All right. Well, thank you so much again. And um, I would love to do this again sometime. I would love that. Maybe we could talk about happiness advantage or yes yes I I would absolutely do that okay cool thank you for listening to wake up call the podcast I hope you enjoyed this episode if you'd like to know more about me you can find out more on my website christinaprevitt.com and be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading learning listening to doing basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now Follow me on social media, look up Wake Up Call the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call, or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.